Hey folks, this is Abe Shreve. Welcome to the Choose Difficult Podcast. The path to success is not easy, and here we explore the stories of those who choose difficult and change the world they live in. It seems like a theme in the stories of these amazing performers that there were real challenges in their early life. It's not true of everyone. I mean, we've certainly had those people that grew up in a household where mom and dad loved each other and they, you know, things went well. That is not the story of our guest today. In fact, I have known him for better than a decade, and I heard stories in this interview that I did not know existed. And it blows my mind because of how much he's accomplished. Today, Cody Gibson owns a real estate sales team that has expanded to 115 cities in 28 different states, and they're in five different countries, including the U.S. He's also the director of growth and expansion for Keller Williams International Real Estate Company, and he owns three brokerages, one in Oregon, one in Arizona, and one in California, among other things. He's an Ironman athlete, and he does a lot of things for other people. Cody has an amazing story, and we're going to dive right in, but I want to challenge you to make sure to listen all the way to the end. We've done something special on this particular episode. Now, Cody started his very first job very young. He remembers his first job being at the tender age of five, and it was working in an industry that was not meant for a five-year-old. Mom and dad were good human beings that shouldn't have been parents. They were uh, pot farmers before it was cool. Today it would be cool. Back then it wasn't. Back then it was just illegal. And I remember a few things being a kid. Like one, we couldn't have friends over for half the year because our house was full of weed. And the other half of the year, uh, we could have friends over. And I remember we lived in Northern California and we would drive around these old forest service roads. And dad had a pickup truck with a waterbed bladder in the back and like a, like a, like a, a canopy over that. And what we would do is we would go and we would find our little pot patches and you'd only keep eight or 10 plants together in case you got ripped off. You didn't lose your entire harvest. And what we would do is we would fill these jugs with water and we would walk into the forest and water our little patches of eight or 10 plants. And then my brother and I, our job was to take like a broom or branches and like sweep up our tracks going back to the truck because people would drive these old roads and look for footprints. And I would have been like five. And like, I've often thought, like, I, I feel like I'm not old enough to write a book, but I've thought about writing a book and like naming it, like sweeping up tracks because like that, for whatever reason, we all have memories that stick. And that's one that even from five or six years old is clear as yesterday. And like in the moment, you know, it's wrong. In the moment you're like, why would I have to do this? But my parents need me to do it. And I remember every fall we would go and we'd rent a houseboat on uh, Lake Shasta and we would have just bags and bags and bags of pot. And our job was to sit there and clip it and put it into Ziploc bags. And like that was our vacation in the fall, but also by the fall, you're out of money. And so we were excited to get the pot put together so we can go and sell it uh, so we could have money for the winter. And when I was maybe nine or 10, um, dad moved to Alaska in the course of a weekend. Long story short, our little group of um, drug dealing friends and family were getting uh, busted by the DEA. So my dad came home and he said, oh my God, I have to leave. And he put some stuff in the truck and drove to Alaska. Back in those days, like you could just go to Alaska and not be found again. And so he went, got on a fishing boat. And about four months later, we followed. And it was this tiny little town. It was called Klawak little 
tiny native village, maybe 200 people, 250 people. And we lived there for a while. And then we moved to the big town of Craig, which was maybe 800 people. And we lived there for a while. Then we moved to Juneau, Alaska. And at that point, I'm 10, 10 and a half. Mom and dad didn't make it. Dad moved back to California. And for the next three years, my mom, who was a terrible mother, did the best that she could. She worked two or three jobs, um, had lots of different boyfriends that moved in with us or we moved in with them. And she would take my brother and I, and we would go for three months or four months at a time to uh, family around the country. Like I went to see my dad three or four times and my grandma three or four times in Arizona. And what we would do is we would go and she would rent out our bedroom. And that's how she would kind of make ends meet. And I remember the last time that happened, I would have been 13. And I think I remember like from, from like nine to 13, I was the new kid at school, like nine different times. And no one wants to be the new kid at school. And like, it was like, it was terrible. Uh, but I remember at 13, I was living in grandma's house in Arizona. And I was like, mom, I really want to come home. It's like February. And she's like, well, your room is rented out till July. And we had like a boat on the side of the house. And like, I don't know, I think that necessity is the mother of invention. So I'm like, well, can I, can I, can I, can I come back and live in the boat? I have a little girl who's almost 13 today. And the idea of her having this dialogue would be crazy to me. And I'm like, can I come back and live in the boat? And she goes, well, I suppose so. But the boat didn't have any heat and didn't have any lights. And so when I moved home, I had like this extension cord and I had a little uh, space heater and a light. But if I plugged them both in, um, it would blow the circuit. And so I remember clear as yesterday, like for the rest of that winter, it was a decision every night. Do I want light or heat? And I think as atrocious as that sounds for any parent who hears that story, makes you grow up fast. And so to this day, like, I think every time I go and I touch like my thermostat, I remember like, oh yeah, there was a day that you had to choose between the two. Today, I don't have to choose at all. Today, I can leave the heat on 100% of the time and leave every light on in the house if I wanted to. And I think sometimes that the hardship that we have creates the opportunity that we really desire. As you can imagine, Cody got sick of moving around all the time, constantly changing schools. And he said to his mother, I don't want to move anymore. And she said, well, you can take the city bus. However, I'm not going to pay for it. You got to figure out how to pay for it. So at a very young age, Cody gets a paper route. Now, they did something interesting at this time. They, they were in the city of Juneau, and they would give him two extra papers. The idea was they could give out those papers, and people might sign up for a subscription to the Juneau Empire. And Cody was walking through the town square one day, and somebody said, hey, do you have a paper? And he handed him a paper, and they gave him a dollar. And the light bulb went off in his head, and he realized, huh, this is something I can do. He continued to do his paper route, but then he would also go around to different people's offices and say, would you like a paper? And they would give him a dollar, give him some change. He eventually took on a second paper route, and he would also go to the paper box. He'd put in 50 cents, and then he'd take all the papers out. You couldn't do that these days. But he was wearing a bag that said Juno Empire, and no one would question the paper boy. And so... At that young age, he started to make somewhere between four and $500 a month. 
of course, mom is charging him rent and mom is charging him for food because he's making money now, but he's got a little bit of a problem. There are too many papers for him to pick up. So he needs them delivered somewhere and they can't be delivered where he's living now. I went to this neighborhood because I needed, I needed to have my papers delivered. And I started knocking on doors. And the thing I remember was not everybody was nice, but nobody was mean. Nobody yelled at me. They just said no. Like I had a little script like, hey, I used to live in the neighborhood, need to have my papers delivered. It won't, it won't be a problem. They'll be in a plastic bag. I'll pick them up after school every day. Like I kind of developed this little, I didn't know it was a script, but I developed it. Nobody was mean. Nobody, I mean, I guarantee you, I can't remember any one of the conversations. So I think for rejection, that was one of the lessons of rejection. It doesn't matter. They just said no. Anyway, I knocked on a door and it was an old lady and she was like an old Alaska native. And she goes, oh my gosh, I'd love to have your papers delivered, but I need one thing in return. And I'm like, yes, what do you want? And she said, would you mow my lawn? And I said, yes. And so I started mowing her lawn once a week and her name was Ida. She was probably 85, but to me, she was like 200. And um, I'd pick up my papers and she would often like have me come in and just talk with her. She was lonely. She had no family. And she looked forward to seeing me every day as much as I looked forward to having somewhere safe to have my papers delivered. She found out about my home life. And so she would like make a sandwich or give me something to drink. It was probably, I don't know, eight months later, I went to get my papers one day and there was a bunch of people at the house and Ida had died that weekend. And her son or whoever it was that was taking care of the estate said, you must be Cody. Like she had written in, I don't know if it was a will or, or just a note or something, like giving them instruction that I could still have my papers delivered there. And I don't know, like, I don't know what that relationship meant to her, but it meant a lot to me. Cody told me that he thinks of Ida all the time. She was a stable figure at a time in his life that he had a lot of instability and there were days that sandwich was the only thing he ate so that meant a lot to him as well cody said that eventually he realized there's a limit to what can be done with the paper out i mean he's, he's only got so many hours in the day that he can go and deliver papers plus he said it just started to suck and his mom had gotten in the habit of making him show her his pay stubs and then telling him this is how much you got to pay me and so he got a job somewhere else. At 14, I went to work for Kmart. We had moved again, and now we were living in an area of Juneau, and they had just built a Kmart store like across from our apartment. And so I went into the Kmart store and applied. And that day, like on the spot, they hired me and they put me in the photo developing which, I mean, I don't know, my kids will never know what this feels like, but you used to take film into a store and come back in an hour or two and they would hand you pictures. Like it was ridiculous, right? And, and, and my kids will never know. They'll never know what it feels like to go in and find out that you had delivered a can of film that was uh, overexposed or was blank. But I would stand there and I would develop the pictures. And what I found was I made a hell of a lot more money doing that than delivering newspapers. And at the time at 14, I had a work permit. So I was allowed to work like 26 hours a week. But the reason I say that is that I didn't want, like, I liked being there. It was clean, it was safe, like there were good adults. And so I would just clock out and go back to work. I mean, I didn't want to go home. And so it's like, I would just, I would just work. I would just work every single night. 
um, after school, I'd go in and then I would work all day weekend and I didn't need the money. I just wanted to be there, but I made friends with all the managers. Right. And I think that when I got older, I looked back and I was like, man, a 14 or 15 year old kid who works hard and shows up and has a good attitude, like they could literally go anywhere they want in life. You could do anything you want. You could have anything you want. And I think about that today at 41, if you have a good attitude, work hard, and you're good to people, you can do anything you want. That hasn't changed. But I got real lazy because everybody liked me. I was able to get away with everything. And so what I would do is I'd go in, I'd clock in, and I would steal a Coke, and I'd go lay on like a chair in the lawn department. And one night, this guy walked up to me, and we had a new manager coming. And you could tell where this story is going. And his name's Randy. He walks up and he goes, hey, you must be Cody. And I'm like, yep. And he goes, you're fired. And I said, fired? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I'm the new manager. I've been hanging out in the security department for a week. And every day now you clock in, you steal a Coke and a bag of chips, and you come back here and lay on a chair. You've been robbing from me. Get out. And I was like, whoa, all right. This was the first time anybody called me out on my stuff, right? So I went to, the, went to the locker room. I took off my stupid red vest. And when I got to the front door of that Kmart store, Randy was standing like two feet inside the door. And he looked at me and he said, I've heard that you're a great kid, but you're lazy and a thief. He said, you have two choices. You can step outside the store and never come back in my store again, or you can go to work for me. And I'm like, I'll take option two. So I went back, clocked back in. And for the next three years, like I worked side by side with him. It was interesting because I was at the time 15 and didn't have a dad. Randy would have been 40 and didn't have a son. And so both of us kind of filled these roles. He taught me how to work. He taught me how to like win with people. He taught me how to have confidence. And I became at the time the youngest manager in Kmart history at 16. Like most of what I've done, I could attribute to what I learned from him. I think somewhere at the end of time will be a collection of all the greatest leadership moves ever made. And somewhere in the top 10, will be Randy standing just inside the door saying, you have two choices. You leave my store and you never come back or you come work for me. I think he had to tell Cody, you're fired, you're lazy, and you're a thief to get his attention. But inviting that boy back, taking him under his wing and teaching him how to work, you know, who knows how many thousands of lives have been affected because Randy invested so much in this young kid. Now, Cody at this point is making some money. And he likes working and he, he likes not being at home. And his mom's not there anyway, he said. And he decided he just didn't even want to go on with school anymore. He moved out of his house at age 15 and he dropped out of school. And the only way Randy was cool with that is Cody told him, I'll finish it through correspondence, which, of course, he didn't. But he did keep working. I was paying my mom a bunch of money in rent. And I was like, man, I might as well just pay like rent rent and not have rules. At 20, I got into real estate almost by default. And I've never looked back. I've worked real hard in real estate. I've been really good to it. And it's been really good to me. For the next five or six years, I sold homes. I'd work really, really hard. And then if I wasn't working, I'd be playing golf or fishing or hunting or traveling around Alaska. It was incredible. And in 2006, 
a friend of mine had opened a Keller Williams office and I called him and said, I want to hear about it. We went to lunch. And as he was explaining the business to me, it sounded really interesting. I was bored. I was 26 and I was selling homes, making more money than I've ever dreamed of making. And in the evenings and weekends, I was remodeling and flipping houses. I was bored, but I didn't mind working hard. I liked being busy. I heard about Keller Williams, heard about this, um, this company and this business and jumped right in and opened the Keller Williams office in Alaska, worked real hard, grew it to a couple hundred agents um, in a short amount of time, highly profitable. And I've never looked back, been at Keller Williams since. It's not surprising that the same person who figured out how to pay his way as an 11-year-old selling newspapers was doing well in real estate all these years later. By now, Cody's married, and fast forward to 2009, they've got to move. They had an expensive home. They spent money to get that sold. They're moving to Portland from Alaska. They have a nine-year-old boy and a 15-month-old little girl, and they're out of money. And Cody has a choice here on how he's going to approach this. He's either going to go right back into just selling homes, or he's going to figure out a way to sell a bunch of homes without being the one who's meeting the buyer and the seller at the kitchen table. I don't know if you've ever had a time that your back's up against the wall, but you have to perform. And we couldn't move again. And I was like, all right, I, the fastest source for me to make money is to go back into production, to go back into selling houses. But I had no desire to go and meet with buyers and sellers. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. It's because if I did, I would never stop. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the sale. I enjoyed the hunt. I enjoyed um, uh, playing with a home inspection and, and negotiating. I liked it, but I knew I'd never leave it. And so at the time, I was like, all right, I'm going to sell 100 homes this year in Portland, Oregon, where I don't know anybody, and I'm going to do it without meeting a single buyer or seller. And that's how I met the coach I worked with back then. His name was Tony. And I had reached out to Tony and said, will you coach me? He said, no, I don't coach people that don't have teams and you don't have any production. And I said, okay. So a few weeks later, I called him again and said, will you coach me? And he said, no. And I said, I'll sell a hundred homes without going on a single appointment. And he said, huh, that's interesting. I'm in. And the reason I share that story is that to this day, if someone says no to me, it just means they're not interested. It just means it's not interesting. If you find something interesting for them, they're in. They'll say yes. I just needed to give Tony something that was uh, different. And so we did. We went out and we sold 104 homes that year. And I didn't go on a single appointment. But what it did mean was I had to build a business real fast. And I had to find leads real fast. And the easiest source at that point was the internet. And so we were running ads on Craigslist. People were replying to ads. And in a matter of months, we had virtual assistants all over the world. I was shipping CPUs like computers uh, to the Philippines or Thailand, and they would log in there uh, so that we had IP addresses all over the place and they would write ads and post ads. And then our job was to follow up and sell houses. Uh, and that was 2010. The Tony that Cody is referencing, his full name is Tony DeCello. And Tony was my coach as well. In fact, he is the one that brought me into coaching and the last 22 months that he was a coach, we were partners. He wanted to retire and he brought me in as a partner to work with the people that he was working with. That's actually how Cody and I met. I would become Cody's coach way back then. Tony is hands down the best coach that I've ever worked with. Just an amazing guy. 
One of his gifts was to get people thinking differently. And you've heard me talk about my partner, Gary Keller. Gary Keller really planted a seed in Cody's mind that would cause him a month of sleepless nights. At the time, Gary Keller was talking about what he called expansion, an agent working in multiple cities. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds interesting. And I remember thinking, if I could be in five cities, I could have a giant business multiplied by five. And then I was like, wait, wait, what if I could be in 10 cities? I could have a giant business multiplied by 10. And so the third quarter of 2010, we launched our first expansion business, hired an agent uh, four or five hours away, Tri-Cities, Washington. Um, To this day, I've never really been to Tri-Cities, but they had homes and they had buyers and sellers and they had agents. And so I hired an agent that I used to coach to call agents in the Tri-Cities area to cold call and basically pitch them on the idea. We found three candidates. I flew all three to Portland and hired one who ultimately was uh, a terrible crook. He was a horrendous partner and a terrible person to get in business with, but I learned a lot. And so we did well until I looked down and we'd lost a quarter of a million dollars in Tri-Cities and it was time to fold up camp. But the lessons I learned were well worth the money. Fast forward, we were, it was 2014. And this is an, like, this is interesting to me. 2014, I was going to speak at a conference and someone said, Hey, uh, it, it was all about goal setting. And they were like, put on this brochure, your goal for 2020. I was like, all right. And so the goal was to be in 40 cities by 2020 to expand into 40. At the time I was in like eight or nine. So 40 was a long way. Away. You ever heard someone say, if you tell someone your goal and they don't laugh, it's not big enough. Well, I was laughing and I had shared the goal, 40 cities by 2020. We tend to look at people and we think that they have this crystal ball. They don't. I thought it was entertaining. I was going to turn 40 years old in 2020. So I thought, shoot, if I'm 40 years old and I'm in 40 cities, what a great story. Like this will this will sell. I'll put that on a brochure and people will pay me to talk. And that was the extent of it. It felt like a mile away because it was. The reason I share the story is 2017. I'm going to the same event and same conference, same conversation. And my assistant at the time shows me the brochure that we had used and said, hey, we need to update this. And I said, why? She goes, because we're in like 71 or 72 cities. And the reason I share that story is it's my reminder. I can't find it anymore, but for years I kept that stupid brochure because it was my reminder that even when I think I'm thinking big, if I haven't gone there yet, I have no idea what big means. Because I thought 40 was the moon. And three years before the goal was set to happen, we were in 70 cities. So I think about that today. I think, all right, when I think I'm thinking big, you could double it, you could triple it. I don't know. Like there's all kinds of silly games, but you don't know what you can do. There's no idea. Today we're in 115. Uh, that's 28 states, and we're now in five countries. And I don't know like what to do with that. I spend half my time going, that's awesome. And I spend half my time going, oh my God, how do we keep up? What do we do next? One of the greatest challenges for an entrepreneur like Cody is learning how to be an impactful and effective leader. And we know this is a challenge for people. Otherwise, the leadership section at the bookstore wouldn't be the biggest section of any bookstore. There's a thousand books, right? Everybody has their take on what makes a great leader. But listen to me when I say this. This is the hill to die on. Understanding how to become an impactful leader. And in our company, we call it the coach approach to leading. Understanding how to really motivate people 
and to help them in their personal development, help them connect with why their work matters. That's the secret ticket. That's the golden ticket. And this was something that Cody really started to focus on as he was expanding his business. I think there's two things for me that relate to hiring leadership in my company. One, John Maxwell calls it the law of the lid, meaning whoever the leader is, is going to hold back everybody else at that level. So if you're a level eight and you accidentally hire a level nine leader, you're either going to grow really fast or they're going to leave you. And I've seen that happen time and time again in my own company. I also believe deeply in the idea of different season, different gardener. I've had some great leaders who have come through my organization and a handful of them I've had to part ways with, not because they were terrible. In fact, one of the leaders I let go, we went and had lunch. It was the end of the year and he had had an incredible year. Like he had more than doubled the business and it was almost shocking to say, I have to let you go. But I didn't think he was the right guy for the next season. And more importantly, the season after that. And I've always been able to discern the difference between being friends and being friendly. I loved this guy. I still love this guy. He's an incredible human being. If I could find a way to hire him back in the business, I would in a heartbeat. But at the time, he was the wrong person for where the company needed to go next. Growing leadership for me, the best way this worked for me is to let people run their life and do their job and stay out of it. The challenge with that is when you stay out of it, sometimes they feel like they're all alone. And so in my leadership journey, how do I leave people alone and let them do their job, give them space, but then also know that I'm right there. It doesn't mean that I've, that I've abdicated the leadership. It just means I'm allowing you to do your job, but it's all based on how I do my job. When I ran a Kmart store, my divisional manager, if he came to the store or my ultimate store manager, if he was in the office that day, if he came out of his office, I'd get pissed. I'd be like, Don, what are you doing out here? Your job was to sit in your office and do whatever you do back there, but get off my floor. I run the company. If you're out here, it's because you don't believe I'm doing the right thing. And so that's always how I've looked at leadership in my company. If I'm in their business and I'm monkeying around, they should tell me to get out. They should say, no, this is my job. Unless you want it back. Are you firing me? Because if you're not firing me, get out. Like, this is my job. I'm going to do it. So give them space, let them run. And I've done a really good job of letting people know I believe in them. Like I've worked really hard at that. You have to be okay with them screwing up. And that's always been the easiest thing for me. Because uh, when somebody messes up, I don't get upset. Like I've, I've, I've messed up as much or more than anybody else has. And so I think it's just a matter of having some empathy and being able to say, yeah, they screwed it up or they messed it up. Or worse yet, maybe they just didn't make the decision you were going to make. Most people who run companies and most people who are entrepreneurs are wild, wild control freaks. Meaning if somebody chooses A and you would have chosen B, they're somehow wrong or stupid or messed it up. Nah, let them choose B unless you want the job back. The best thing about them having the job is that it's theirs and it's not mine. Their job to stay up at night and worry about it. It's not my job to worry about it. I completely agree with Cody. There's nothing more diminishing than a leader that's a complete control freak. The opposite is true, too. There's nothing more demoralizing than a leader that doesn't give you the assistance that you need. Leadership then becomes this fine balance between helping someone get clear on what, what it is they're going to do and holding them accountable to doing it and allowing them the mistakes needed for them to become the person that can perform the work that you're doing where you don't need to think about them. They do become the person 
that worries about it and handles it and treats their job as if they're an owner. It is the most beautiful of things in a business. Hiring and leading others can be the most rewarding part of a business. And trust me when I tell you, it can also be the hardest, most challenging part of a business. And so I asked Cody, what keeps you going? I'm motivated at a deep level by never looking back and thinking I was mediocre. Like my greatest fear is to lay in bed one day and think, oh my God, I lived a mediocre life. I had a mediocre business. I had some mediocre kids. I did some mediocre stuff, took some mediocre bait. Like I don't like that scares the hell out of me. And so for me, the motivation is usually based on the idea of what I don't want less so than what I do want. There was a time, and, and this is like a, this is a weird roundabout way of getting there. But for a couple of years, I was like a, uh, uh, did a bunch of rafting and a little bit of fish, uh, like, like rafting guiding in Alaska. And if you're, if you're in a raft in Alaska and you're, you're floating down the river and there's danger, you always point the raft at what you don't want to hit. So you look right at danger so that you can, you can backstroke away from it. And I still look at my life and my business that way. I'd rather just see it and go, that's not where I want to go. Don't want to go there, avoid it. And so I avoid being mediocre, but it's based on how I see it. Somebody would tell you, oh my God, you live such a big life. And you go, no, like it's nowhere near as big as it could be. All right, stop. Listen to me. This is a great moment to make some notes and answer for yourself this question. How am I leading others and how are they responding? You'll know how you're doing by how they're responding. Look around your organization. Who's been here the longest. And of those that have been there the longest, do you feel like you're pushing a rope or do you feel like they're pushing you? That is a reflection of your leadership. When you have a great leadership relationship with someone, they'll move heaven and earth for you because you're leading them according to their goals and their desires. And it's just, it just happens that you can meet your company's goals and desires by helping them meet theirs. In Cody's case, he recognized that even going way back to when he was really young, there was a kind of leader, a coaching leader that he responded to more than others. For me, like coaching came real early. One, every person that was in my life when I was a kid who helped me they were always like the ones I responded well to were the ones who coached the ones who told you um, two things. One, here's a direction you could go. And two, I believe you can make it. And for me, it's always been that person who believed in you. And I'd work doubly hard or triply hard for that person who believed in me. I remember when I ran a search and rescue team, we were, uh, we were doing a rope, um, a rope exercise and I was coming down this cliff. It was an ice cliff. And the person next to me was the person who was the coach for our team. And I was scared to death of heights, scared to death of ropes. And I looked over and I was like, his name's Chuck. And I'm like, Chuck, I'm scared to death. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, that's what makes you the safest person on the team. He said, you're scared to death. He said, you double check your knots. You won't step on your rope. You won't use somebody else's carabiner. He goes, you are the safest, safest guy out here because you're scared. And I looked at him and he said, I think you'll be fine. And I can't tell you what that's meant to me. Like, I think you'll be fine. I believe in you. And in the coaching relationship, the people that I like to coach, I have to remind myself to tell them, I think you can do it. Like, yeah, it's hard. I think you can do it. 
Like, and, and on that day that you don't have enough belief in yourself, just borrow some of mine. I have plenty of belief in you too. So use mine. Abe, you and I have coached together today for got a decade, 10 years, 10 or 11 years of coaching together. And you've always done a really good job of saying, here's what you ought to go and do. I mean, yeah, you ask me some questions sometimes, but you do a great job of delineating between consulting and coaching. You've never seen a basketball coach on the sideline go, hey, hey, number six, how do you feel about number 10 beating you up and down the court? They've never said that. They've said, hey, six, get your ass moving. 10 is smoking you. Like that's coaching to me. A coach is on the sideline telling you what you need to do to win. They're not asking you how you feel about it. Like, hey, how do you feel about running a little harder? No, run or sit down. Those are your choices. And you've always done a really good job of not making me answer 50 questions. You'll ask a couple and then you'll just be like, do you want me just to tell you? Because you can see what I can't. When Cody said this, when we first did this interview, it made me laugh right out loud. And I laughed now just going back through it. I'm going to give you what I call a coaching ninja tip. And, and here it is. A lot of times in the world of coaching, the world of coaching is predominantly self-discovery. You know the answer. It's inside of you. And, and I'll bring it out of you. A lot of people in the business space, and I'm one of these people, there are times that that's important. But a lot of times we know what we need to do. That's not what it is. So here's the secret. When you're working with high drivers like this, you'll say to them, I can coach you here and help you figure it out, or I can tell you what I think, which would you prefer? Now, they will say 10 out of 10 times, just tell me what you think. So you tell them, I think this. But here's the critical piece. You step back into coaching and say to them, okay, I've said a lot of things. What did you hear? And you're going to start exploring through questions what they heard and what they're going to do. I asked Cody a ton of questions, but the way that I set it up, he feels like I'm really leading him. But the truth is he's leading himself. That's one of the keys to coaching. Cody's done a lot in the world of coaching and giving back and helping other people. When COVID first hit, he started doing webinars for teenagers. I remember there was one, he had something like 18,000 teens that signed up for this. You know, we spent some time talking about the things that he was working on. It was really amazing. But he would tell them, you're enough because he remembers being a kid and wanting more acceptance, being a kid and wanting to believe that. Ida gave that to him when he was 11 and 12 and 13. She would say, you're enough. This was something that Cody craved and desired. He never got this from his mom. When I was six, my mom sat my brother and I down and said, listen, I never wanted to be a parent, never wanted to be a mom, and I'm stuck with both of you. And at this point, you can call me ma'am or missus by her last name. And so for the next year or so, we called mom, ma'am, or missus, whatever. And when you're six, that goes in a little box that's labeled rejection, which is right where it belongs, because that's what it is. But what that's reminded me throughout my life is that somebody in sales, like I stepped off stage one day and this guy goes, hey, I want to be just like you. And I said, without thinking, I was like, well, that's stupid. And you're stupid for saying it. And then he looked at me and I was like, oh, shit, I better clean this up. And I said, what I think you meant was that you wanted to be okay with rejection. Because I'd been teaching about sales and I've been teaching about hearing the word no and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I want to be good with rejection. And I said, no, let me help you, man. 
I hope you're never good with rejection. I hope you experience so little of it that every time you actually have it, it stops you in your tracks. I remember sitting on the edge of the bed one day and my wife said, I think I loved you when we met, but I know I don't love you now and I'd like a divorce. And that's one of those moments that your life stops and that's rejection. And I've always looked at that and I thought somebody saying, I don't want to hire you or you're not going to list my house or I'm going to work with somebody else. Those things aren't rejection. Those things are just no or not you or somebody else. And so I've never been the type that's like, all right, okay, I'm going to go out and be really good with rejection today. No, I'm going to always struggle with rejection. The problem is what I put the label of it on. And if I call something in sales rejection, then I'm going to feel it the only way I know how, which is debilitating. So I'm real good about understanding the difference between the two, which allows me to ask anybody anything. Because only a few people, and it was, it was Gary who, who made this comment once. He said, the only people who can really reject you are the ones who might be at your deathbed someday. I've never gone on a listing appointment or tried to hire somebody in my business or made a pitch for a sale and ever thought, you're going to be there the day I die. That's never happened. And so they could say no or screw you or you're terrible, but none of them have the ability to reject me. Just a son that says to a dad, you're not my dad anymore. Or a mom that says to their son, you're not my kid anymore. Those things are rejection. And I hope for you listening that if you're in sales, you never experience enough rejection in your life that you ever become okay with it. That sounds horrendous. My heart breaks for young Cody Gibson. Can you imagine your wife saying that to you? Can you imagine your mom sitting you down saying, I never wanted to be a mother? Maybe some of you listening have experienced that, but I certainly haven't. Neither of my kids, and neither has Cody's kids. That's important. I asked Cody, if you were to write a book today for business, what would you write about? If I could write a book tomorrow on business, it would be titled, Failure's Only Okay When You Find a Way to Win After. If failure is the end of the conversation, you're just a damn failure. But the reason that failure is interesting is when you say, I finally won, and here's all the failures along the way. That story is actually interesting. The person who just fails and never wins, that's not interesting. That's called a loser. But we make it, glor we glorify it. And it's almost like people go, um, I'm self-made. You're a jerk, man. Everybody is self-made. It's just the people who succeed that are proud of it. I love listening to Cody talk. Now, some would hear that and think, God, that guy is harsh or that guy is judgmental. But here's something that I've learned doing this podcast. Behind the curtain, everyone struggles with something. And those that look really good, they have a pathway paved with the scars of challenge and failure. And they've gotten up more than they've fallen down. And that does not mean it's been easy but it does mean that they've developed some resilience, and certainly that is Cody. Cody's story really inspired me. I'm inspired by all of those that come here, but the timing of this one and my relationship with Cody really, really got me thinking, and two years ago, I picked up a guitar, and I'm obsessive. I'm absolutely obsessive, and I've got a 15-year-old that joined me in my obsession, and Jake Martin, who is sitting next to me now and is the producer of this podcast and my partner in this podcast, is a really talented musician. I got inspired and wrote a song. It's called Cody's Song. And it takes parts of his story and tells his story. I wrote the part for the acoustic guitar. Ethan wrote the part for the electric guitar. 
my dear friend Joshua Stern, who's an award-winning musician, he wrote the keys. I wrote the words, and Jake and I came up with the melody. So without any further ado, here's Cody's song. I know why it's cold in the morning I see a little boy with a paper in his hand There goes long, another man at the door It's a lot for a boy to understand Gotta hit the streets early if I want to eat I take care of me Stowaway on a boat that's never been to sea I'll trade a paper for a dollar if you see me I like this job, it's clean and they're nice The whistle blows and I stay on They see a hustling boy they say he likes to work I'm a kid doing life without a mom But Ida lets me store my papers at her house for free If I motor grass she'd make a sandwich just for me And Randy taught me honest work, he never had a son We worked together until the day was done I'm not sweeping trash Though it's hard looking back I won't erase the past that made me wild I'm not sleeping trance I own a business now People work for me I've come a long way from the past Inside my office door, there sits a lonely boy, he doesn't need to ask. Here's a dollar and a sandwich, there's just one thing that I ask. Be here tomorrow and come early when you do, cause we're not sweeping trash. I've known things my kids will never know We can do more Every lesson I've learned living on the street You can be rich and still be poor I'm not sleeping trans Though it's hard looking back I won't erase the past it made I'm not sweeping trash Though it's hard looking back I won't erase the past It made me who I am I'm not sweeping trash Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you learned as much from Cody as I have. 
I'm always grateful for people that are willing to take us behind the curtain and share with us the challenges that exist behind what has made them the success that they are today. Just amazing. If you are a business leader and would like to know what hiring a coach would look like for you and your organization, just head over to mymapscoach.com and let's set up a meeting. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us an honest review. It really helps us in our mission to help others. I hope you've enjoyed our time together and I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to explore the stories of extraordinary individuals who choose difficult.